0: Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the History Workshop Podcast, bringing radical history into dialogue with the present. I'm Ellie Robson. In this episode, historians and activists discuss the urgent issue of environment. This conversation took place in April 2018 as part of History Acts. Organisers Stefan Blaney and Guy Beckett host History Acts sessions about once a month at Birkbeck College in London. They aim to encourage the exchange of ideas and experiences between radical historians and contemporary activists, to find new ways for academics to learn from activists, and to see what expertise and institutional resources historians can use to provide active solidarity. History Acts is developed in conjunction with the Raphael Samuel History Centre, which is also a partner of History Workshop, and you can find out more about History Acts at www.historyacts.org. In this episode, two historians and two activists discuss the environment and solutions to climate crisis at both global and local levels. The discussion kicks off with Ellen Gibson from 350.org. 350.org use online campaigns, grassroots organising and mass public actions to build a movement around climate change, with a network extending to 188 countries. We'll then hear from John Hunter from Divest London. Divest London is a citizens' movement, pushing public authorities and other institutions across the capital to show leadership and divest from fossil fuels. Our next speakers are Chris Church and Barbara Brachet from Our Places, Our Stories, mapping and celebrating 50 years of local green action. This project will record the remarkable places and projects where local people stepped up and took action, places where they said no to changes that threatened their environment or their community, or where they wanted to create something new, a city farm, a cycle route or an energy project. Finally, we hear from Simon Pirani a Senior Visiting Research Fellow on the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies' Natural Gas Program. Simon has published widely on the development of natural gas markets and changing consumption patterns in the former Soviet Union. In 2018, Simon published Burning Up, a Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. So first, Ellen Gibson from 350.org.
2: We kind of see ourselves, our role in the movement as being perhaps on the more like radical end of the like spectrum of the climate movement that we very specifically want to be talking about the root causes of climate change as being about Economic, social, political injustice, and particularly the fossil fuel industry being the main culprits in that. So we're not an organisation that's t- telling people to turn off their lights, like change the light bulbs, or f- like that kind of thing. But more focusing on like how can we work together to achieve systemic political economic change in the UK. The main campaign that we support is the divestment campaign. The divestment campaign is actually drawing on a historical example from the anti-apartheid movement in the kind of 1980s to ask public institutions like universities, local councils, churches and other faith organizations, health groups to stop investing in, in the fossil fuel industry. The aim being that we can use the weight that these public institutions have in society to stigmatize the industry, start to kind of dismantle their political and social power. It's kind of based on an idea of like these companies, the industry can only operate really with a form of consent from society and if we can erode that consent then we can challenge their power. So we're not really trying to bankrupt the fossil fuel industry or target their money because they get that from digging oil out the ground. We're using that as the kind of conduit for a campaign that's really about creating social and political change. And we're also trying to build a massive climate movement because I think that The type of systemic, long-lasting change that we need to address the climate crisis can only happen if it's being underwritten by a massive social movement that can kind of transcend whatever politician happens to be in power at that time and, like, build a foundation for that to continue. And so we want to create campaigns that are engaging at a local level so that we can do that kind of movement building and bring in new people, engage new people to take action, but link that into, like this global movement that's happening that's kind of what we do and like what that actually looks like on the ground is there's like kind of a hundred or so campaigns around the UK targeting different types of institutions like students targeting their universities groups targeting their local councils faith groups and people kind of picking an institution that has symbolic and personal significance to them and that they have power over fundamentally and using the fact that these institutions have this kind of gravitas, I guess, and harnessing the power we have over them to get them to divest and make this kind of public political statement. And we've had some big successes. We've had about 100 institutions, or like maybe more than that now, I can't quite remember, around the UK committing to divest, including like a third of UK, or nearly half of UK universities now. And we've also started to build some really important allyships across different movements so like last year we saw trade unions unison and also the tuc passing national policy motions to support the campaign and support like broader efforts to transition away from like a fossil fuel based economy and building this movement at like a grassroots level i think where we're like struggling with like how to translate that into the change that we want to see is how do we create those real links between the movement that we're building and the campaign wins that we're getting and like instrumental political change at like a policy level and like at a financial level and how do we like build those links together because sometimes I think they can feel a bit disjointed and also building a framing around climate change. That is moving beyond just talking about particles in the atmosphere and moving beyond narrative around individual action and individual blame towards one that's about system change and about human impact. And I think that narrative is starting to break through, but it's taken many, many years for that to happen. And we need to accelerate that because, well, at least I believe it's a far more compelling narrative, one that engages more people and one that like gets to the heart of the problem rather than talking about the edges. I guess. So, Divest London specifically is kind of a campaign group that's been around since 2015. And it operates as like a single campaign that's targeting City Hall uh, and the pension funds specifically that City Hall controls to get them to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, It's not actually a particularly big fund, but we think it's like a hugely symbolic victory. And if we can get the Mayor of London to be standing up and saying, Age of fossil fuels is over, we need to keep it in the ground, like that is hugely important. And creates this political momentum that we can then hold him to to be like okay so you've made this essentially like you've made a statement about what you think about fossil fuels how come how are you actually going to put this into action so we're targeting City Hall the campaign's been running for about two years and we also kind of play a mobilizing role across London of like trying to convene lots of different campaigns bring people together do big exciting fun actions to get new people involved and progress wise we had a big win back in 2016 when Sadiq Khan was elected. He put commitment to divest in his manifesto, um, which we were like, hooray, we've won. We can just like, sit back and chill now, but it turned out that wasn't really the case. And since then, we've been increasing the pressure on him to actually enact that manifesto commitment through a kind of some like backdoor negotiation type stuff combined with escalating public action leading up to an action that we did in November of last year where we occupied the City Hall's Assembly Chamber only very briefly, then we were carried out by security guards, but the point still stands. And that's kind of been pretty successful. We're reaching the point now where we think that he's probably gonna make a public commitment within the next couple of months. So we're still working with City Hall to get that to happen and trying to think about like how we can make the most of that like potentially huge moment, both to catalyse like new energy and momentum in other campaigns around the country and around London and also, like, start to make those links with concrete political action.
1: Now we're going to hear from John Hunter from Divest London. To me, climate change is
3: the biggest challenge facing humanity, and sometimes people make claims, and they sound quite big, but that is a big claim, and I'm pretty sure it's scientifically and practically correct. Because I'm a man, let's have a couple of statistics... Climate Policy Initiative. Now, whether they're right or not, I don't know, but I think they're right in terms of the ballpark figures. They've said that if the Paris Agreement independently determined national contributions system were to work, i.e. each nation has pledged to do stuff at Paris, and if each nation does that stuff at Paris, it will keep temperature rises to a mere 2.7 to 3.5 degrees higher than what they are now, i.e. far too high it would be disastrous, that if you want to do that, you've got to spend $13.5 trillion by the year 2030. If you want to stay at the two-degree target, you have to go up to at least $16.5 trillion by the year 2030. This is money you've got to spend, and this is a lot of money to find behind a sofa, of course. But if you want to keep to the 1.5 aspirational goal, which is the only thing that keeps things safe, for example, it's the only thing that gets you even remotely near to Ellen's organisation's 350 Parts per million of carbon in dioxide in the atmosphere, then you have to spend at least in the mid 20 trillions and probably more. Now, the ambitions of governments at the moment only amount to about $300 billion a year, and climate policy initiatives figures are probably quite conservative. So, as climate activists and as sort of general members of the public who vote occasionally for green things, We're winning the battle against climate change, but we're winning it so slowly that we're losing. We're going about eight to ten times too slow. So that puts the onus on everybody in this room and everybody on the entire face of the planet to actually do stuff. When I first got into climate activism, I asked myself, well, there are lots of these groups. Amongst them, which are actually being effective? Number one, who have actually got plans that, if implemented on a wide scale, would actually work? And number two... Are those plans working? So I've gone to lots of groups to see what they're up to. And to my mind, the, the the three most effective groups that I've come across so far are Campaign Against Climate Change, which I work for quite closely. And they do a number of things. 10, 12 years ago, they thought, well, let's get people on the streets. Now, it sounds sort of, you know, 1968 or back to, you know, the sort of a, the period of the French Revolution or something like that. But for the last 12, 14 years, they've had marches every year. But they've also increasingly got themselves involved in the trade union movement, etc., they come up with a program for government called One Million Climate Jobs, and what this is is that they have a program which, by the year twenty thirty, would reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the United Kingdom by eighty five percent. There are also plans for other countries like South Africa and Canada, about at least six or seven different countries. Um, and so we're working at the moment on trying to get government to implement that. The Green Party have largely implemented it, but are unlikely to win a general election anytime soon. The Labour Party have sort of endorsed it a little bit under uh, Ed Miliband, and considerably more so under Jeremy Corbyn, but haven't actually done the hard work. Because the last time in Britain that there was a huge government programme to achieve something was the Attlee government of 45-51, and they introduced full employments, the welfare state, and the NHS. And I remember a few years ago people sort of saying, well, we're all Thatcher's children now, but as we see time pass, a lot of Thatcher's legacy is collapsing, and much of it is not very desirable. In reality, we're Attlee's children and all the brilliant ministers who worked for him, the Bevan and the Bevins and many of them. And the reason for that is that under the Beveridge Report, which was written during the the Second World War, proper planning was done. So one million climate jobs would be an equivalent to that. So if it were introduced, and it would be a huge effort even to get a political party to adopt it, then that could do the job. Because I've talked a little bit about money required, but there's also a time element, and that is that we've got to win, basically, by about 2030 or 2035... We've got to have decarbonised most of the international economies to the tune of at least 60, 70, 80% by then. Because after that, it's too late. Then temperatures will definitely rise 2.5, 3, 3 3.5, no matter what we do. There we have one example: a a policy initiative, an old-style policy initiative which might potentially work. Um, That's campaign against climate change. Divest London. The interesting thing there is you can get quite small groups. Like, for instance, in Southwark and uh, and Lambeth, I think in Southwark there was only a group of like maybe a dozen or so. So quite small groups can achieve quite big things because if you say that there are about 30-plus local councils in London and each of them have got about slightly less than a billion on average of pension funds, of which about 7%, i.e. £70 million, is invested in fossil fuels, if you can get your local council to divest here in London, that's £70 million out of fossil fuels and a small campaign could do it. But I noticed that um, Ellen talked about mass social movements Now, all the groups I've involved in, i mentioned two so far, Campaign Against Climate Change and Divest London, they're quite small. Now, I always find it quite funny when you go to a lot of green meetings, they say, "Um, the problem with this meeting is that everybody here is white middle class, too many of them are male, and there aren't enough females... Particularly, ethnic minorities are massively underrepresented. And I think to myself, yes, I strongly and fully agree with that, but the main problem with this meeting is not the fact that it's not diverse enough, although that's definitely true. The main problem with this meeting is that, basically, even the category that you actually say is overrepresented here, i.e. white middle-class men, okay? There are only a tiny number of white middle-class men here. There are are 20 million white middle-class men in the country, and you've got about three at this meeting. So the problem is not simply that we haven't um, enthused all parts of the population. We haven't infused any part of the population. If you take something like Divest London, now I don't know, because I haven't asked all of them, but I strongly suspect the 12 people who turn up to Divest London most often, the stalwart members who do most of the work, I'm pretty sure nearly all of them are Oxbridge graduates. So we're talking, again, about a, sort of, sort of a, a small elite there, uh, an elite within an elite. The most interesting group probably I've joined recently is Stop Killing Londoners. Now 9,000 people a year die from air pollution, here in London, um, and about 40,000 in the country as a whole, which is a hell of a lot of people. And it doesn't need to happen. You could quite easily, by spending not very much money, in fact, society as a, ho- a whole would actually make a profit because you'd be spending less on things like health. Okay, so it should be an absolute no-brainer. It should go. We should go down to from nine thousand down to a, a few hundred very very quickly if you had really competent government. So we started to campaign on on this issue. So we did a lot of stuff to try and get enough publicity and four of the members of the Stop Killing Londoners group got arrested. Once they got arrested the fourth time, they actually got got imprisoned, and they've done it again since. And not long after they'd been imprisoned, the mayor got on the phone and actually said, we want to meet you. And I was quite surprised by it. I didn't think it would work. And it's quite interesting that those old-fashioned techniques, he goes back to sort of the um, ideas of Martin Luther King and stuff like that, that they do actually work. There are lots of players going on. There are activist groups like 350.org and Divest London and campaign against climate change, Stop Killing London is doing stuff. But lots of politicians, like, for instance, Sadiq Khan's an interesting one. He is pretty green, but then, you know, he's high-banned by various things. So it's basically a question of pushing him in the right direction. So if you can find him at the right moment and in the right way, you can actually move him into the right position. And that's also true of the obscure group, the London Pension Fund Authority itself, which actually consists of seven board members. Some of them, there's a guy called Merrick Cockle, who's the actual chairman, and he's a Tory, so you think it would be useless. But actually he's quite interested in green investments and things like that. So if you put in the effort, you can get results, because the majority of people in Britain, in every country in the world, in fact, believe that climate change is a problem. The two problems they have is that, A, they don't understand how much of a problem it is, and even if they did, they're not putting in the effort even people like me and ellen are not putting in enough effort okay and we're putting in quite a lot of effort in terms of the amount that actually needs to be done if we're going to win on climate change i think one of the, the final points i make is about divestment and that is that divestment is great moral boycotts as ellen was saying so for example if you persuade people that coal and gas are not nice industries to work for and then people who are like 18 19 20 don't actually go and work in the fossil fuel industry then that's a plus so if you actually create this idea that it's that it's not a nice thing, like tobacco or asbestos in the past, that does quite a lot. But in terms of going back to what I, where I started with, which is the money, the bit about divestment I like is the second part of it. It's often called divest-invest. So divest is that you sell the shares of the 200 largest coal, oil and gas companies. That will do so much. You'll get a, you'll get a boycott and it will have some impact. But the bit I like of, uh, of divestment is the invest part. And that means that you take, the, say, the 5 6 7% that you've actually sold... And then you take that money and you put it into renewables. Because the only way that we will actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions quickly enough is basically to build very large amounts of renewables. We've got to do lots of other things as well, but we've got to build very large amounts of renewables. But as I said right at the beginning, that costs a colossal amount of money. And the good thing about divestment, and the reason I joined the divestment campaign, is that there you have actually a realistic avenue where you could actually channel really significant amounts of money into renewables so you'd have a practical solution to the problem which is that we've got a huge amount of money that we need to spend and we're not spending it and divestment potentially is a way of doing that
1: Our next speaker is Chris Church from Our Places, Our Stories
4: While our work is about local what I'm going to talk a bit about is kind of what do we actually learn from history is it even worth considering history what in fact has history ever done for us in terms of the environmental sector, and also, I thought it might just be worth thinking: what is if we're talking about history of environmental action? Where do we actually start? Because there's a tendency now to focus on the big issues, climate change. But this stuff goes back a very long way, thousands of years. People have looked to try and control resource use. People haven't been stupid. Water courses have been protected in so many cultures. Shakespeare's father was famously fined for keeping an unlicensed heap. I mean, you know, that was legislation. But let's think about what do we actually mean by the environmental movement, social movements, NGOs. And I actually think you don't have to go back that far. If we think about the 60s, we get a few things like that. And some people would say that was where it all got started. Or, actually, we had global TV. This was the Torrey Canyon disaster, now forgotten. 240,000 gallons of crude oil spilled out onto English and French beaches. society simply wasn't ready for it. But it was the first time we'd seen stuff like that. So I think if we go to 1970, suddenly in America, literally millions of people doing stuff they'd never done before. What made it happen? It's kind of not actually immediately clear why suddenly the environment became such a focus. Of course America had had its own disasters, the Love Canal, pollution scandal, all sorts of stuff. But there was some specific stuff. And in 1970, a guy called David Brower walked out of what we best describe as an old-style conservation group, the Sierra Club. They'd been protecting empty spaces, but they wouldn't oppose nuclear power. So he went and founded Friends of the Earth as one of the first overtly political environmental non-governmental organisations. Meanwhile, post peace group Don't Make a Wave testing nuclear weapons testing, they found a Greenpeace. So you had both of these started out ten or twelve people, one room or one boat. This stuff has evolved. And it's evolved in all sorts of ways. So really what have we learned? Well, a few points. Firstly, we need a massive revolution, as has been talked about. We've had some revolution but we've had an awful lot of rebellion. And rebellions and protests are great, but actually we need to be successful. We can win. And I think what we have is some quite noisy defeats. We have an awful lot of quiet victories. Because actually a lot of the road protests that you might remember Twyford Down, Newbury, those big defeats ignores the fact that three quarters of the roads that were due to be built at that point under John Major's Roads to Prosperity Scheme were never built. The whole thing simply didn't stack up. But one big question. Have we just won the ones that we were actually going to win? You could argue that nuclear power was such an unbelievably stupid thing. But um, by and large, we were pretty much likely. Clean energy, wind and solar makes so much economic and practical sense. We won endangered species. We didn't win the World Trade Organization. There's a whole bunch of things where real money has come up against us and we now have the existential battle of climate change. But let's also remember that it's not just about campaigns. There's actually been an emerging green infrastructure. All those renewables are just part of it. And an awful lot of that started with a small bunch of radical community-focused people. Not everyone actually campaigns. People want to actually get out there and do stuff. Some people might say it's not enough, but equally a lot of those people have inspired, engaged, and got an awful lot more people engaged. An awful lot of people do get engaged at the local level. Recycling may seem spectacularly boring, but that was a fairly hard-won campaign, and local people creating a local infrastructure was what led governments to actually recognize that stuff needed to happen. Local food, farmers' money you could say some of this is purely middle class people paying ridiculous sums of money for a loaf of sourdough bread (laughs) but you could equally say that local food activists transformed school meals in Britain about 10 years ago we don't want our children being fed this kind of mass produced shit anymore and actually there's been some profound change in how we do food we've created an awful lot of jobs maybe not as many as we should have done and we have seen multinationals fall over themselves to try and accommodated. There's a question about how far we're creating a nice little green niche in the midst of a much bigger multinational dominated economy. How far is the ideas in that niche permeating the rest and is it doing at it anything like the speed we need? Probably not, but we're getting there. Clean energy is one of course where we have gone from a few ever so slightly wacky people putting up windmills in their back gardens to 400 meter high offshore wind turbines. And I could actually show you the slide of a wind farm in the North Sea, half of which is owned by a huge Danish company. The other half of which is owned by a German cooperative of local people who have invested their money in it. There are new models coming out of this. And green spaces, seed farms, we actually want to engage people in this city with their environment, they need green spaces not just to breathe slightly cleaner air, but to actually understand what the environmental movement talks about when it talks about (coughs) environments. So, can we use history? What can we learn? Can we make it happen? Can we actually use this to work more effectively, whether it's on campaigning or infrastructure or simply getting people involved by telling good stories? If there's one thing that has got people involved It's hearing good stories. I can remember years ago listening to someone who I'd never met before talking in a meeting about this size, about crawling backwards under barbed wire at the German Gorleben Nuclear Waste Facility with a protest and finding himself next to a 75-year-old priest who was also crawling under the barbed wire. That's kind of why I'm here now, I think. Stories are important. But shouldn't we actually be out there making history rather than talking about it? There's one for historians everywhere. I think we're at a critical time. We have to deliver radical change. We have to reach zero carbon sometime around 2040 in terms of global economy if we are to stave off very serious climate change. And the faster we decarbonise, the more chance we have of staying within theoretical limits. But I rather suspect but if someone had put up this phrase we are now in a decade where our actions will define our long-term future in the 1960s or the 1970s or the 1980s we may be facing an existential crisis now but we've had an awful lot of crises before and people are kind of maybe a bit bored of them so what can, we've set up our places our stories to chronicle an awful lot of local stuff if we say that this has been going since 1970 it's getting on for 50 years. A lot of the people who were radical students back then are either, you know, fat bottom academics or elderly pensioners or they're no longer with us or whatever they are. And in some cases the history, of the records exist as a cardboard box in their loft. An awful lot of this stuff is pre internet page. So our place is our story. You can find us on Facebook. T.S. Eliot. Not necessarily a quote in many radical circumstances, (laughs) the use of memory, liberation from the future, as well as the past. You know, if we're gonna understand change, if we're gonna create change, we need to understand change. And there's been an awful lot to learn from. Thank
1: you. We'll now hear briefly from Barbara Brachet, also from Our Places, Our Stories.
0: I think the important thing about making the history known is actually making, Making the story visible or making stories visible is incredibly important and also one of the things that characterises the, the movement is fragmentation. I think that the points you're making about individualisation <coughs> and localism are very pertinent because in some ways there's been a very effective, that the way those things have, have happened has actually been very effective in preventing you know, the needed kind of attack on the sort of neoliberal structures that are really driving the, the fossil fuel industry for instance and so i think there is a movement now a way to bringing things together much more effectively and one of the other points that i wanted to make was about intersectionality and bringing together people who have got different agendas different oppressions different issues uh, in common cause rather than just, you know, your environmental campaign to stop the motorway being built in your back garden. Uh, I think one of the examples that I would quote as being very successful and something that we could learn from is the Standing Rock, which obviously had an environmental agenda, but also brought together activists from um, all sorts of other campaigns Indigenous rights and uh, all sorts of other issues, which galvanised uh, a huge global response. Actually, which was orchestrated through social media. Again, I think is a very powerful tool that could be put to you know put to good use um, in addressing a lot of these issues. And I, th- oh, I suppose what I think. What the history tells us is that all of these things have coalesced to massively raise awareness, public awareness, over the last 50 years. It's like we need the local and the global and the, the national the international. We need all of it. Those things don't have to be fighting each other, which I think is something that kind of characterises... A lot of activists, you know, they sort of, instead of getting together, they sort of pick fights with each other and prioritise their, you know, well, we're, we're more effective than Greenpeace because, you know, they hit the headlines by putting their boats in front of a whaling ship, whereas another group that's maybe quietly, for instance, divestment, don't hit their front pages of The Guardian. There's all that kind of hierarchical elements to, to all of that. So that's where I think perhaps the history is quite interesting and relevant in looking to see how effectively to use well, you know, those lessons and issues to really take things forward.
1: Finally, Simon Pirani from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies' Natural Gas Programme.
5: There's four things I'm going to talk about in the time. First thing is about divestment. I I mean, I was really pleased to hear you, Ellen, talking about that the idea was the damage the the company's social license to operate, that actually you don't have a perspective of of choking off their finance. And I was thinking about three or four weeks ago when two of the world's most powerful governments said it's all Russia's fault. And uh, the Russian state actually issued a treasury bond on the Friday afternoon and raised seven billion dollars, which just shows you, uh, you know, it was completely oversubscribed, which just is a good reminder that markets don't care about political opinion or or public opinion and Russia's largest energy company Gazprom followed on also issued a very large bond in the middle of all that kerfuffle. So I think it's important to bear that in mind and and I was all geed up to talk about stranded assets which is a concept which very often we hear in the context of divestment that we're going to go and tell everyone don't invest in coal because coal's on the way out and you're going to lose your money. And, of course, coal prices are actually historically quite low, and therefore the valuations of coal companies actually at the moment are historically quite low. But just look at the oil prices. Oil prices are not low, and oil company shares aren't particularly low either. And that's because there's a whole set of complex interactions which determine the price of these companies. And I always remember the week of the Paris Agreement being signed when I searched in vain to see any movement whatever in the share prices of oil companies because the investors, stripy-shirted investors correctly understood that governments making promises was not going to alter one bit the fate of those companies. Okay, so that's the first point. Second point is I'm gonna provoke the organizers of this great session when you said, you know, we're we're sort of looking to history for those things which are gonna help us practically. And I, I suppose my provocation is that If you just read through the history book looking for a sort of analogous situation, you're reading it the wrong way. And I think that's really, really important when we're dealing with problems of the complexity of the ones that we're talking about. And I I know you weren't really saying that. But I think, to my mind, what history can do to all the valiant activists, whether it's you or whether it's the people sitting on top of the gas-fired power station cooling towers in Nottingham or plain stupid heroes, you know, trying to stop the runways being built, whoever whoever it is. I think it's about ways of seeing and ways of thinking about the problem. And a book that's really influenced me very strongly is by two French historians. So if if you read one book, of course, you have to read mine. But if you get to a second book, read this book by these two guys, The Shock of the Anthropocene by uh, Christophe Bonnet and uh, Jean-Baptiste Frézor. Because what they talk about is exactly this question – so they talk about the, the idea of the Anthropocene as being a, an era where the whole game between the biosphere and the humans has completely changed. And they put a very convincing argument that we're in that epoch, all these human impacts take a huge leap upwards after 1950. So the question for historians is, why does that happen? And uh, very much like to echo some of the things that Barbara was saying, that, you know, it's very complicated. And and the conclusion I reached in uh, writing my book, which is about fossil fuel consumption, which is the main cause of global warming. So, again, this is the big climate problem, which isn't to say that the local ones don't matter or air pollution or whatever. But this is the big one that I was focused on and which uh, divest campaigns are focused on. And I reach the conclusion which sounds kind of very straightforward but that we're talking about technological systems which are embedded in social, political and economic systems and that we need to think about it that way. And one of the things that really irritated me from the very start is seeing these graphs about population and you know, that of course that we're using more fossil fuels because there's so many more people, especially black people, in other countries. And there's a huge kind of discourse that goes into that and has, has gone into that since the 1970s. And you only have to look at a couple of graphs of population compared to fossil fuel consumption to see what a load of rubbish it is. The reason that fossil fuel consumption has gone up in China, for example, is that China has become the workshop of the capitalist world and is producing all that cement and steel and aluminium and so on, which used to be produced in richer countries. That and the consequent urbanization is, are the main drivers of greater fossil fuel consumption in China, not the fact that there's more people. Okay, so some, just some points about how to think about the problem. You mentioned the climate policy initiative stuff uh, and these humongous sums of money that they proposed are necessary to shift from fossil fuels to renewables. And I would suggest not to think about it that way because I think that the change that we're talking about is a change of those technological, economic, and social systems altogether. And that sounds like too huge for any of us to worry about, but I mean, getting down to specifics, so two examples. One, yes, of course, every kilowatt hour that's generated from renewables instead of coal or or gas, fantastic, that's great. But there are huge potentials for decentralizing electricity with, with technology is actually and what engineers say is this technology has existed for as long as mobile phone technology or, or internet technology and the one industry where it's never been used is the electricity industry why because the electricity industry is controlled by big companies who want to sell as much electricity as possible so i really do think that's a very clear example of where if you don't tackle the problem of ownership and and the social system you actually don't really get to the bottom of the environmental problem which is caused by the production of electricity the second example would be car-based transport systems i mean we do live in a society which is based on the assumption that the way to get from A to B is in a car, and there's a historical reason for that. That when car-based transport was developed in the United States between the First and Second World Wars, with the companies lobbying very hard for investment, so you've probably all heard of the Marshall Plan, uh, which was implemented by the United States government for sort of rebuilding Europe after the Second World War. What I didn't know before I started working on this book was that actually they spent about five or six times as much money on the construction of the interstate highway system in the United States and corresponding changes to urban transport just to make damn sure that everybody who lives in the United States can't get to the corner shop or to get their kids to school or anything else without a car. That's also a product of American history first of all, which has then been implemented in Europe after the war and they're now hoping to install this model for the middle classes such as they are of, of china or india or if you take that historical perspective then when we come to the present i've had a lot of arguments with uh, friends in the environmental movement. you know electric vehicles is the way to go well only if you produce like 100 percent of your electricity from renewables which is a big ask and also it, have you looked at the amount of fossil fuels via the the metals and all the parts and so on isn't a greater transformation of our urban existence is uh, something we need to think about. Final point I'll make is I think that the history of the, this huge increase in, in the use of fossil fuels that is essentially a 20th century phenomenon is yes, it starts with the Industrial Revolution, but the really big consumers of fossil fuels are technologies of the second Industrial Revolution. So that's the steam engines, the electricity that's produced from them, the internal combustion engine, and as a byproduct of inventing poison gas. In the First World War came chemical fertilizers for agriculture and and these are all the really big users of fossil fuels in the 20th and now the 21st century. What we see is a history of the commodification of energy. So prior to the 20th century the vast majority of people did not live in cities, they lived in the countryside and they got their source of energy, whether it was wood, wind or water, essentially got it themselves. And when electricity was made technologically possible, there's then a huge clash, even in the United States, between those who said, well, it's a service, and if we're gonna expect these working class people to live in towns and go to work, the least we can do is along with some sewage so they don't die of cholera, we can also provide some electricity. And there was a kind of public service ethos, uh, particularly in Europe, but also in parts of the states and, and cooperatives and so on. Then against that are the corporations who saw this electricity is something to sell. Now, that struggle then over whether energy, which is basically something we use, which comes from natural resources, is a commodity or not, has gone right through. So in the 1990s, there's a huge drive to privatize the electricity system. So in India, there's this fantastic battle between local governments who, who want to provide electricity and the corporations who want to sell it. Urban dwellers in developing countries who move in in their millions to shanty towns and what a cheek from the ruling elite's point of view they actually expect to have some electric and they don't expect to pay that much for it either and uh, in South Africa for example uh, after the end of apartheid when there was a huge electrification program the real battles that were fought were over should poor urban residents who are eking out a living and essentially providing their cheap labor industry should they pay for this electricity or not and uh, so that battle over commodification has continued and I I feel that there has to be a connection between the fight for the transition away from fossil fuels which is absolutely uh, necessary and urgent that also has to be related to this question of uh, is this a commodity or is this something human beings uh, can get what they need from nature in a way that is harmonious with that nature and also that the the profit motive and everything is not in the middle.
1: Thank you for listening to History Acts on Environment. Our thanks again to Stefan Blaney and Guy Beckett for their work organising History Acts. To find out more about future sessions and join the conversation, visit www.historyacts.org. You can follow the History Workshop podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. And you can find out more about us, History Workshop, at historyworkshop.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at HistoryWO. Until next time.